0: this week, as I was reading and researching a little bit on this passage, Genesis 7, is that there are actually around 300 different worldwide flood stories that have been found in cultures throughout the world. The stories vary according to region and local flavor, but they are remarkably similar. It was interesting. Uh, 95% of them have a flood as the sole cause of the catastrophe. Uh, 88% of them say that there was a favored family that survived. 70% of them say the vessel of delivery was a boat. Uh, 67% said that animals were also saved. Uh, 66% said that the disaster was due to man's wickedness. 57% said that the survivors end up on a mountain. Uh, Smaller percentages said that there were birds sent out uh, to check and see if land was available. Uh, Others said that there was a rainbow mentioned, and others say that there were specifically eight people. And that's interesting because some people can take that and say, Oh, well, that explains it. That explains why Noah's Ark is not true. And why this flood story, it's just a myth. It's just a fable. Because all these other cultures have this flood story, and, and we need a, a story to kind of scare our people, to scare our children. You need to act right, or God will judge you. But maybe if we think a little deeper, let's go ahead and put that if there really had been a worldwide flood, Wouldn't it have made such an indelible impression on the survivors and on the generations, their descendants that came after them, that it would have been told over and over in many different forms and spread and passed down? Hugh Miller was someone who investigated all these stories. He said this, the destruction of well nigh the whole human race in an early age of the world's History by a great deluge appears to have so impressed the minds of the few survivors and seem to have been handed down to their children in consequence with such terror-struck impressiveness that their remote descendants of the present day have not even yet forgotten it. It appears in almost every mythology and lives in the most distant countries and among the most barbarous tribes. I think that's strong evidence that it's true. Last week, Dr. Dave dealt with Genesis 6, where the second part of that chapter, where God made the decision to flood the the world because of man's wickedness. The decision to show favor to Noah and his family, the instructions for building the ark, and the storing of provisions and animals that would survive. Uh, Today's sermon will deal with the flood and its destruction. Next week's we'll see the relenting of the flood. The following week, we'll talk about the renewed covenant and the cultural mandates of chapter 9. So I've asked some of the students to come up and read the scripture for us. So Genesis chapter 7. All right.
1: Hear now the word of God coming from Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth.
2: This is Genesis um, 7, starting at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Then they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that mo- that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That's the word of God.
0: Thanks. Well, now that we've heard the account of the destruction of the flood, um, I'd like to talk about another sort of controversy with the, the Ark, is that some people believe it's just a local flood, as opposed to what we generally accept as worldwide. Uh, there was a scientist named Bernard Ram, who presented the case that, to the writer of Genesis, it seemed that the flood was so massive that it must have flooded the whole earth, when in reality it probably only flooded part of the Middle East. It was just a local flood. And he bases this idea, kind of the assumption is that the topography of the earth was the same as it is now. And so you notice the detail in there that the water was 20 feet or so above the highest mountains. So if that was over Mount Everest, the water that that would take would be eight times the amount of water that is normally on the earth. And this additional water would have altered the earth's weight and disturbed its orbit around the sun. And he says that the astronomy has not detected any kind of pattern like this. And Mixing fresh and salt water would have killed many species of fish. And there's other problems with animals coming from different climates and their transportation across continents through bodies of water. So he concludes that the flood was local to the Mesopotamian Valley. But there are serious problems with that thesis as well. uh, James Montgomery Boyce counters that, starting with the biblical data alone, um, a local flood makes very little sense. The wording in this passage is that all the high mountains under the entire heavens, all birds, all livestock, all wild animals, all people, And it's true that there are parts of Scripture that use the word all and don't necessarily mean all. Christ died for all, well, all of the elect. And you have to understand that. But here the wording of Genesis really is misleading. It makes no sense if it's just a local river that has overflowed. On top of that, a small local flood does not last for a year. Additionally, why would Noah have needed a 450-foot boat? Why would he need a boat at all? I mean, he had 120 years sort of notice. I think that's plenty of time to pack the house up, leave a forwarding address, and just move down to Egypt or wherever the flood's not going to hit. Additionally, chapters 8 and 9, God promises never to flood the earth again doesn't make a lot of sense in the context, well, I'm not going to locally flow. There have been plenty of local floods throughout history. Is God lying there? Has he been misquoted? No, I think it just doesn't make sense in a smaller scale. If this is a regional flood, we're saying that people in other areas of the world survived And that therefore they did not descend from Noah and his sons. And yet the text, Genesis 9.19, says that from them, the sons, came the people who were scattered over the earth. It's, It's a recreation. And that doesn't make sense if it's just a local flood. As Scripture interprets other Scripture, as we look at where the flood is mentioned, other places, Job 22, Psalm 104, Isaiah 54, Matthew 24, Hebrews 11, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2 and 3. There are a few places. They all refer to the flood and presuppose that it was worldwide. So that's from the scriptures alone, but there are answers to each one of his objections. The answers to the animal migration that that I think 120 years is plenty of time for God to solve that problem and bring all the animals that needed to be there. Uh, The assumption that the earth had the same topography is probably flawed as well. Without getting into too many arguments, uh, this whole argument reminds me of when people try to explain away. We'll just take one kind of area of critical scholarship. When, When Moses and the Israelites Flee Egypt and get to the Red Sea and and Moses parts the water, right? We all know that. Well, it's explained away. Well, that was probably the Reed Sea, you see. The people could have just walked across the reed. It wasn't very deep. Nobody would have drowned. They would have just walked across. There wasn't a miracle. Oh, really? How did the Egyptians drown? I mean, at a certain point, you have to either accept the Bible's record or reject it. To explain it away is to say that you are starting from a point of of not accepting the supernatural, the miraculous. And if you do that, you will never read the Bible correctly. I think there is a strong case for accepting this account for what it says. That God flooded the whole world. Let's look at some of the details in the passage. I always used to wonder how long it took Noah and his sons to sort of round up all the animals. I mean, they had to be pretty good trappers to get all these animals from all over the place. And, and, uh, man, they probably had to build stalls to hold them. and, And, I mean, think of that. They just had to build this ark. This massive construction project, now they got to go be hunter, gatherers, and ah, oh, must have worn them out, right? But I don't think that's what the text indicates. I just sort of came up with that, when reading through or thinking through the story as a kid. I don't think there's any indication in the text that they have to go get the animals. It makes a lot more sense that God put a divine calling into the animals so that they showed up they were where, when and where they were supposed to. That sort of divine migration. Uh, verse 15 says, They went into the ark with Noah. They came when they were called. And everybody remembers there's a little confusion, and most of us remember the song, The Animals, They Came by Twos and Twosy Twos, right? So we got that stuck in our head. It's just a pair of each animal, right? But here we see in the text that it's seven pairs of clean animals. And one pair of the unclean animals. And by clean and unclean, we don't mean some of them cleaned up after themselves or didn't smell as bad. We're talking about clean in the sense of sacrificially pure and ready to be sacrificed. And um, Matthew Henry sees a, a neat parallel here. It's not spelled out in the scriptures. But you can see that with six pairs would be used for common use or for in a sense, work and procreating, repopulating the earth with that, whatever that animal species was. And then the seventh was set aside for a spiritual purpose. Just as our six days are to work, and our seventh is set aside. And so that seventh pair was then sacrificed as a thanksgiving when the ark finally finds dry ground. Another details of the, Text here, if you haven't thought through, you you get to this, uh, there's an exact date. And I think we we need to notice when dates, when very specific details are brought up, it's it's even more confirmation that this isn't just some fable. That the writers of the scriptures are writing this as history. And so you come to that, uh, it tells you exactly what day the flood started. The second month, the 17th day. Now that's not February seventeenth. Our right, Valentine's Day didn't just happen, um, but if you go by the Hebrew calendar that started in probably in our September, then it's most likely that the flood started in late October, early November, and then the text says that the rain lasted forty days, which takes us right up to right before Christmas time in our calendar. Then the waters don't recede a total of 150 days till probably the spring, right? March or April. Then another 150 days, they don't get close to getting off the ark until late summer, early fall of the next year. So don't miss sort of that whole cycle of the year. There's others who, have, who believe that the, date, the dating should start in April, May. Um, so we don't, we don't know enough necessarily to be conclusive. But it was a year-long process. I don't think we sort of had that 40 days stuck in our mind that it was a quick uh, month and a half and then we're out. This was a year long that they were trapped inside this ark. It was a long ordeal. Uh, there's other details in the text um, that it took a full seven days from when God sent Noah and company into the ark and then when it started, actually starts raining. And a lot of commentators believe that this is a week where the ark was open and anyone who had wanted to come could have come and found refuge and sanctuary. That doesn't say that explicitly, but he waits. He says, Noah, today going to the ark, seven days, I'm going to start the rain. So they've got a week to get ready. Another detail is that it, um, as you look at the The flood, you realize that it took both heavy rainfall and then the idea that the waters burst forth from the fountain from inside the earth that combine the flood. One more detail is the fact that, uh, I don't know if you caught this, but Noah was 600 years old and he, he didn't have any grandkids. He maybe did, maybe they just didn't mention them, but he certainly didn't have any that came into the ark. So if he did, they drown. Um, but really, he didn't have his three sons that survived until he was 500. It was after that. Just think about the length of Noah's life. Imagine being around since the 1100s from the Middle Ages. And today, you're in your 900s getting ready to die, and the flood happened back you know, according to our lifetime, it would have happened back when America was being discovered by the Europeans, 1700s. That was a long life. But ultimately, people don't care too much about the details of this story, the details of this account, until they can settle one issue. I think the great issue that many people have with this text, as well as uh, the accounts of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, other biblical texts where God brings his judgment to humanity, is that there is something within us that doesn't want to allow, it resists allowing God the ability to judge when and how he chooses I mean, we will let him make pronouncements about right and wrong. We'll let him give us the Ten Commandments and enforce rules and um, be angry. But we are just not comfortable with him killing in judgment. Doesn't seem like a very nice God to us. I've got the bulk of sort of This part of the sermon from Mark Driscoll's Sermon, The Flood. And he he says that we have to, I I think there's questions or there's just um, objections that come up with this account. We want to say, couldn't God have just sent a good man as an example for others to follow? Well, he did. If you remember back in chapter 5, he sent Enoch. Enoch walked with God, he went straight to heaven. People weren't really following his example. Well, maybe God could have just waited. This all seems so sudden. Really? It's been 1,500 years or so since the fall. Things are just getting worse. God gave 120 years of warning, but nothing's changed ultimately. Third objection, well, maybe God could have sternly warned them. It could have just scared them, right? Wouldn't that got gotten the message across? Well, I think we're forgetting that God has already sent a stern warning in the face, in the consequence of death. I mean, in, in the garden, there was no death until Adam and Eve fell into sin, and God said the result of that is that you will surely die, not immediately, But now death has entered in and it is a reminder that God takes sin seriously and that he will judge. Well, maybe God could have just let them sin, right? Believe me, you do not want to live in a world where sin is left unpunished and unchecked where man's depravity is left to run wild. We want a God who judges. Well, God should have spared them. Well, he did. He sent the boat. And anyone, I think, who wanted to get on could have. And no one did. Their will was bent against God. You see, the point is that people die every day. Because the wages for sin is death. People go to hell every day. People die and stand before God every day. And it usually doesn't trouble us in the least. Unless it's somebody very close to us. Or if it's a large enough death toll where we have to stop and consider our own mortality. But ultimately we shouldn't be shocked that God wiped out most of humanity In the past, we should be more shocked that he didn't put an end to the human race right then. That he allowed it to continue. In the same way that we shouldn't be shocked that he judges sin today. The real shock should be that he extends eternal life to his enemies who deserve justice and punishment. A real question we need to ask ourselves is will we be like Noah's neighbors who were in denial that judgment was coming? Matthew Henry wrote a very memorable phrase to me that Noah's neighbors were drowning in security and sensuality before they were drowning in those waters. You may need to take a look at your life and examine whether you are drowning in your own attitudes and actions that keep you from seeking the truth of God's impending judgment and his available mercy. Remember the responsive reading Matthew 24, 38. Jesus says that in Noah's day, people were eating and drinking. They were marrying and being given in marriage. In other words, they were just carrying on Their lives. They were totally surprised by judgment, even though I think uh, Peter says that Noah was a herald of righteousness, that he preached righteousness, that he probably let people know that it was coming. But the unbelief kept them from responding. Jesus is urging us to be ready for his return. No one knows when it's coming. So be ready. Don't be sucked into a life of ease and pleasure. Every one of us will either be confronted with our own death or with the second coming of Christ. And if you have no idea how you'll fare in the, second, or in the judgment before God, if you're just hoping that he grades on a curve or, or maybe that he isn't just that judgmental God after all, you might want to get a picture in your head, a picture of someone holding an umbrella before a coming flood. It's not going to do much. It'll keep a little rain out. But it's not going to stop the flood. Because according to the Bible, God's wrath is being stored up for the unrepentant. And it will be released and your self-justification, your hope that the Bible is either lying or misleading are going to be nothing more than an umbrella that will do nothing in the face of the coming flood of judgment. I wish I had a kinder message to give you, that you could live however you wanted and God would take you in. You could believe whatever you wanted and not face judgment. But the Bible does not give us that option. Your sins must be forgiven in Christ to be acceptable, to be righteous in God's sight. The song we just sang, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. But by what Christ did on our behalf, So the ark of safety for us is the saving work of Jesus Christ. But at some point, as the text says, God himself closes and seals up the door of the ark. Did you notice that? In verse 16, God himself shuts the ark. And after it is closed, there will be no more possibility of being saved from destruction. Once you are sure of your salvation, though, the call is then to bring others inside the boat, to call out to those who are unaware of the coming flood of judgment, even when they laugh at you, even when they call you deluded, narrow-minded, God has called you out as a remnant, just as he called Noah and his family. You will survive the judgment, and he tasks us to call others into the boat, into the ark of salvation. Please never think of evangelism as, as coercion or what the media calls it, proselytizing. Evangelism is extending life and rescue to those who are destined for death. Our God is a God of love, forgiveness, and grace. Our God is a God of holiness, justice, and wrath. Thank God that we who are in Christ Jesus experience his love and forgiveness because Christ took his wrath and his justice on his account. Let's close in prayer.
3: Dear Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your scriptures that give us the words of life. Thank you for the book of Genesis that tells us how you created everything, and how you first started interacting with your people. And thank you that, though you destroyed a whole generation of people with the flood, that you did not give up on humanity. That you showed favor to Noah and saved him and his family so that they could start the human race over again. Thank you that you provide an ark of safety today that is offered freely to all people. Thank you that faith saves us from the judgment that awaits us. Thank you that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us eternal life and a perfectly clean record to stand before you on Judgment Day and be spared from having our sins count against us. I pray that we would help our friends, families, and neighbors understand that they also need to be saved by the atonement of Jesus so that God will spare and forgive them. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for everything good we have in this life. Thank you that we find favor in your eyes. In your name, amen.